You are listening to the Holistic Travel Nurse Podcast. In this episode, this is going to be all about um, history and knowing what to do to fight the good fight. Here you go. We not only should be learning from our mistakes, but we should be learning from what we did right. You see, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Everything that's happening today has happened before. You just have different names and different players, sometimes. It's quite likely many of the players today are the same ones that were back then too. With the same names and the same families. But what did we do? There we go, well, you know what? This really stinks, cause I cast my vote and nobody ever listens to me in parliament. And since my vote doesn't work, the colonies must be dead. We're all lost because we can't do anything in an election. So therefore we should just start shooting. I told you there's nothing new under the sun because that's precisely what they did not do. They said, all right, you're not gonna give us our vote. You're not gonna give us representation. You're gonna mandate this commerce on us. You're gonna force these taxes on us. So you know what we are going to do? Are you ready, Pastor? We will not comply. the people on what the enemy is doing and what liberty looks like and the power of the people. So the people take that education and start organizing and they create a liberty chamber of commerce. They create a network of people from producer to merchant and everybody in between that will create products, that will sell products, that will transport products outside the government mandates. So you say I have to have a vaccination to fly. Well, no, I don't think so because we've got a liberty-focused airline of a bunch of pilots that say, we will not comply and we'll fly you wherever you need to go without a vaccination. So you say, I can't come into your restaurant, I can't shop at your grocery store without my health passport, well, no bother. I'm not going to do my commerce with you because I have farmers and ranchers and producers and truck drivers and butchers and merchants that say, I don't have to come to you because we have a whole network of people that say we will not comply. We've got to educate and we've 
organize. And they did that. But here's the rub. The government didn't just roll over and go, oh well. Can I tell you, they had over 500 years of bad habits in government and they had gotten pretty spoiled in their behavior and pretty arrogant in their power. So we create our liberty commerce and the government pushes back by creating more laws. And they created these laws called writs of assistance to terrorize and flesh out the people who were engaging in the liberty commerce system. Now these writs of assistance was a law that said any government agent, tax collector, customs agent could stand on your front porch Colonist Brian, by the authority vested in me, I will now search your home for contraband and seize such contraband in the name of the king. Now let me drop a little thing in your spirit here. Since 1215, all British subjects had a right to due process. In clauses 31 through 40 and some 50s and 52s, the American, the British, the, the British subjects were guaranteed that there would be no searches and seizures without due process. This law was a violation of their constitution, but the government convinced the people that it was necessary. Number one, because debt in a government is subjugation to foreign power, right? You guys know that when America owes, they don't owe like, well, I would say they don't owe J.P. Morgan, but they actually do owe J.P. Morgan. But they also owe China. They have debt to countries. And whom you're in debt to owns you. So a high national debt is actually a national security threat. So they convinced the people that these taxes were necessary to pay off the national debt because of the national security problem, and it was only going to affect a few people, you know, the bad subjects who didn't want to love their neighbor and pay their taxes. And that it was only temporary until they could get the taxes collected and get the national debt down, which they promised to do quickly because that was the whole point of the illegal taxes to begin with. So it's temporary, it's not you, it's the bad guys in society, and it's necessary. By the way, that's why William Pitt gave his speech in 1783 and said, Necessity is the plea for every infringement of human freedom. It is the argument of tyrants. It is the creed of slaves. So anybody who tells you that it's necessary to infringe on your rights for a certain end product is declaring themselves to be tyrants. And the people that argue that's correct are admitting that they are slaves.
That's not my words, by the way. So the Southern Poverty Law Center in Sacramento can go take a flying leap. Those are words written in history. <clears throat> so what we have now are these searches and seizures with no due process, no check and balance, nothing at all. Just a handwritten warrant scribbled on your front porch by some government agent. Now, there are plenty of government agents that are good people. Plenty of government agents that have moral centers, that, that self-govern, that don't engage in criminal activity. But there are others that do. And what these writs of assistance did was give these agents complete, unchecked, arbitrary power. Can we all admit that it's a matter of human nature that arbitrary power attracts evil people? And how many people, how many evil people have to exercise that power before the power itself is evil? How many? Just one. Can I explain to you, there was more than one. So this tax was a tax on linen, lumber, sugar, tea, paper, and ink. And remember, we've got the Liberty Chamber of Commerce, our underground market. And so the idea was, we're going to go into these homes, we're gonna search them for the Spanish products, for the French products, for the Dutch products, and if they have them, we're gonna search, we're gonna seize those goods, and we're gonna charge these people, arrest them for crimes. The crimes of commerce. But you see, there were evil people as well, who were not satisfied being government employees. I'm overworked and underpaid, and this guy, look at him. He didn't even work for what he's got. He inherited that from his family. Why does he get what I deserve? I work harder than he does. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go take what's mine. Because where's the check and balance? You know, I feel really bad. My brother has worked really, really hard in business he doesn't make the best business decisions and he's always behind the competitors. You know, I, I just feel like if I could help him just once that he, he could really do what's right. So maybe if I go and I use just once, use my authority and search and seize his competitors, you know, even the playing field a little bit. You know, my friend Costco can stay open, but mom and pop gotta close. Right? Now, as unpleasant as that may be, can I just confess to you something? And I'm not seeing everybody in this room. I don't know if we have little ears present today. So let me just speak over them and you reach up and grab it. Will you do that for me? You see, because these agents were not simply searching and seizing linen, lumber, sugar, paper, tea, and ink. They were searching and seizing our wives and daughters. And the people were so afraid, they couldn't say anything except one man. His name is James Otis Jr. James Otis Jr. worked for the government. 
he was an attorney. He had achieved the highest post that any attorney could achieve from the king. He was actually in charge of making sure that the laws were properly enforced and the people were properly prosecuted. Now the interesting thing is, is James Otis Jr. was raised by a lawyer who also taught him about the British constitutions and the fundamental foundations of liberty. And he became conflicted with the laws the government was creating and the job they required him to do. And he decided that he could no longer do this job. And he resigned his post. Now Otis could have gone back to a little quiet practice of law, but that's not who God made him to be. Otis became a whistleblower. He began printing pamphlets to educate the people. He began writing articles because he knew that the people had been separated from their liberty through a loss of education and wisdom. And he believed that if he could just educate and unite the people with the truth, that they would join him in the courage to make the stand. He printed pamphlets. We would call them books today. He taught and educated everybody. He spoke to everyone that he could. Problem is, we don't have the right understanding of those days. You see, Otis's message was not welcomed in the communities. He was outcast. He was called every name in the book but a good Christian man. He was told by those in the legal profession, if you don't shut up, Otis, we will make sure that you never practice law in the kingdom again. What's the matter, Otis? Seriously, why would you be opposed to searches and seizures to see if people are, for in, are, are following the law? I mean, what do you have to hide, Otis? Anybody who just doesn't say, come on in, I've, I've got nothing to hide, must have not something to hide. So what are you, one of these criminals? Otis said, I don't have anything to hide. I just have everything to preserve. You see, we're not supposed to make it easy for them to violate our rights. We're supposed to make it hard. We're supposed to ask the hard questions of our sheriffs. We're supposed to say no to the people who hang signs on our doors. We're supposed to have the courage to say you can't do that to me by my consent and I am going to speak loud and clear and expose your tyranny. So things are getting really bad. And Otis being one of the only first people to actually step up in his face and in his name publish things i want you to see that 1761 40 years before cato letter after cato letters somebody finally puts their name on the bottom line 
Some businessmen came to Otis and said, you're the only one that we see with the courage to do anything. There's an agent in our district that is destroying our families and destroying our lives. Would you please help us represent us in a case against this agent? We can use this to educate people on what's going on because people pay attention to what's going on in the courts and they can become aware by this legal battle. Will we win the legal battle? We don't know, but this is a stand we have to take because this is a way for our voice to be heard. And Otis agreed. What's interesting is the moment Otis filed the first pleading, the British government conveniently forgot that he resigned his post, accused him of the crime of abandoning his post, which is treason and subject to death. And Otis is still standing alone. alive and George Washington was alive and and John Adams is alive and all these people are alive but they're not founding fathers then they're lawyers and silversmiths and generals and philosophers and teachers and ministers nobody knows them other than that Otis is standing alone with a price on his head by his own government. Now I can tell you that Otis could have backed out. He could have said to those gentlemen, you know, maybe we should file for a continuance and wait till we can educate more people and get the public opinion on our side. Because if we go into that courtroom right now without the public opinion supporting us, and we, we're destined to lose, but then we won't even have the backing of the people, and we will have lost everything for nothing. He could have said that, and probably would have been reasonable to say. But Otis didn't say that. He said, regardless of the consequences, I am determined to proceed. And in February of 1761, James Otis Jr. walked into that courtroom and pled the case. That courtroom was packed out that day and James Otis Jr. argued for five solid hours. And at the end of the day, the court said, we have heard the pleadings of Otis and his clients, and we have heard the response of the Crown. And in our wisdom of this court, we have decided to take the matter under advisement. Do you know what that means? That means nothing changes. That means they can continue to enforce this law. That means that James Otis Jr. has sacrificed his reputation, his profession, and probably even his life and gotten no victory in the courtroom. Right now you're sitting there and you're saying, 
Good God, Chrisanne, why are you telling me this story? This is awful. I'm telling you this story because we must learn from history that in the battle for liberty, victory doesn't always look the way you think it should look. Because even though Otis did not win in that courtroom that day, what he did in the courtroom that day changed the entire world forever. You see, because that courtroom was packed out that day, because everybody wanted to see, everybody wanted to hear, because for 40 years, it's been building and building and building and people looking around and thinking something is wrong, but I can't put my finger on it. This doesn't feel right. There's no way they should be able to do this. How are they doing this? Why are they doing this? How are they getting away with this? How do I do something about this? All of this building for 40 years and finally one man said no more. And they wanted to hear what that one man had to say. And in that courtroom was Samuel Adams. In that courtroom was his cousin John Adams, James Warren, and many of these men that you know as the Founding Fathers. They got their inspiration that day from one man. This was such an important day that John Adams would write about it 40 years later. Listen to what Adams said. But Otis was a flame of fire with a promptitude of classical illusions, a depth of research, a rapid summary of historical events and dates, a profusion of legal authorities, a prophetic glance of his eyes into the futurity, and a rapid torrent of impetuous eloquence. He hurried away all before him. American independence was then and there born. February 1761. He said, every man of an immense crowded audience appeared to me to go away as I did, ready to pick up arms against these writs of assistance. Then and there was the first scene of the first act of opposition to the arbitrary claims of Great Britain. Then and there, the child of independence was born. John Adams finished his thought by simply saying, and then in 15 years, that is in 1776, that child grew up to manhood and declared himself free. Because one man said, I will no longer be silent and I will no longer sit, but I will stand and I will educate and I will organize to activate the people. 
He didn't get a victory in that courtroom. But we have his victory today. Now the government's not stopping, mind you. From this meeting, from this courtroom, Samuel Adams, James Warren, Patrick Henry, James Otis Jr. start the committees of correspondence. Notice it takes them three years to organize and put this together. Samuel Adams writes that we needed the committees of correspondence to create groups to disseminate truth to prevent the government from perverting the judgment of men. Can I just mention to you, fake news is not the invention of CNN. Fake news is the invention of the prince of the power of the air. See, part of this is identifying who the enemy is. In 1807, Jefferson would write, Nothing can now be believed which is seen in a newspaper. Truth itself becomes suspicious by being put into that polluted vehicle. The real extent of the state of misinformation is known only to those who are in situations to confront the facts with their own knowledge with the lies of the day. I really look with commiseration over the great body of my fellow citizens who, reading newspapers, live and die in the belief that they have actually known something of what has been passing in the world in their time. See, we have to educate the people. So we have a liberty commerce. We're creating com committees of correspondence to educate and organize the people. And the government says, you know what? We're going to create more laws because that's what we do. And they created the Stamp Act that was passed by Parliament in 1765 to which they affixed that top stamp to all of the English mandated goods. Because remember, the Navigation Act is still law. And they said, all right, we're going to clear up the confusion. We're going to try to get these people to justify our searches and seizures by saying, we're going to, we hear your cries that we got bad guys out there who aren't following the rules. So we're going to help them follow the rules. We're going to create a stamp. And when you when you properly buy the goods, we're going to affix that stamp so that when the search, when the agents come to your house, all you have to do is make sure you have the proper stamp and then they won't be allowed to take your stuff. Yeah, right. So again, it's not just about what the enemies do, it's about how we responded so we can learn from it. You know what? They didn't just simply comply, they simply use their imagination. You see that bottom stamp right there is the stamp that the Sons of Liberty and the Committees of Correspondence made to affix on the underground Liberty First Commerce. You see, they didn't try to counterfeit the stamp to hide what they were doing because they knew they weren't breaking the law. They knew the government was violating the law, the supreme law of the land. So they mocked them in it. And if you can't see the stamp, I'll just describe it to you. It's the old 
uh, Jolly Roger, the skull and crossbones. And it, and it says on there, the emblem of the effects of the stamp, that fatal stamp. On October 19, uh, 1975, the educated people are getting organized. The Stamp Act generated intense, widespread opposition. Taxation without representation, complete and total despotism. At that time, the, the Massachusetts Assembly delegates from nine of the 13 colonies met in New York, six delegates from Connecticut, agreed to draft a petition to the king based on this Declaration of Rights. They organized together to get activated. They issued a list of grievances to the king and the parliament on how they're violating. They declared their rights as a community body in peaceful non-compliance. In the fall of 1765, they convened a Stamp Act Congress in New York and called for a, a boycott of British imports. The Congress was attended by 27 delegates from nine states whose mandate was to petition the King and Parliament for a repeal of the tax. They organized and they activated. In the face of opposition, they continued to defy in persistence. In the face of this, most people don't even know that when you were arrested in this day, you were placed on a prison ship and told that you would be transported to Quebec for your trial. You see, British subjects since 1215 had a written guarantee of a trial by a jury of their peers. They were being denied this right to a trial, but the British government disagreed. You see, Quebec is right now in this period of history actually a British-owned colony. And they said, we're all British. We're all your peers. We're just transporting you to Quebec for your trial by those British peers, right? Because they couldn't get a fair trial and the government could not get a fair trial in the colonies anymore because there was so much education, so much organization and a growing opposition. Why would they send them to Quebec? Because yes, it was British. But when Quebec became a British colony, they made a deal with Parliament. We'll give ourselves to you if you allow us to maintain French law in our land. And French law did not guarantee a trial by a jury of peers. They were being subject to foreign laws in their denial of due process but many of them never even made it because they would just dump them on those ships and they would die there. 
11,000 prisoners died on those prison ships. There's actually a memorial in New Jersey. Over twice the number of people that actually died in combat during our war for independence. Can I tell you, we have no idea in America today the sacrifice they made so we could sit in this building and freely speak and freely associate. We think, oh, they just signed the Declaration of Independence and they went marching and, and sang Yankee Doodle and then all of a sudden we, we got the Cornwallis and I surrender. Can I tell you now? It was about taxation without representation. It was about legislation without representation. It was about the government mandating purchases. By the way, legislation without representation, what's that definition? Everybody remember? When the people who make the laws are not subject to the laws that they make? Mandated purchases, denial of due process, unlimited exercise of authority over the people. It wasn't about a tax on tea. Now the committees of correspondence have been educating the people now for a few years. And let me tell you what happens when people get educated. They get antsy. They cannot sit still. You see, for generations, Americans have been drowning in information and starving for education. I know that's true because information is passive. You don't have to hear it, it just flows. You can do the laundry while it's happening. You can work on the car while it's happening. You can do anything while it's happening. It's just information. But when you get education, it saturates your soul and you can't sit still anymore and you realize what's wrong and you know what to do about it and you are suddenly infused with the courage to say no more. So now they are organized and now they are educated and now they get activated and the sons of liberty are birthed and the protests begin. By the way, the people who actually wrote and ratified the First Amendment, you know, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of press, the right to peaceably assemble, the right to petition the government for a redress of your grievances. Those people had a different idea of what a peaceable assembly actually looked like than we do today. And their protests are something we haven't seen. See, we have rallies. We don't have protests. There's a difference. They have different purposes, by the way, I think we've forgotten. A rally, even by its definition, is to encourage the troops to maintain their fervor in the battle. A rally is for us. 
It's not to discourage the enemy. A protest is to make someone ashamed of what they're doing because it's wrong. See, what's interesting is we have rallies and we call them protests, but then we invite the politicians to come teach and to speak at our, our rallies slash protests, and they're the very people who are destroying our liberty. We're asking them to encourage us in the battle to defend our liberty. Because we've been sucked into tribalism, into personality worship. Oh, but he's a nice guy. You know, he's been my dentist forever, and, and, and he's a good Christian man. He's been in our church. You know what? I don't care. I wouldn't vote for my dad if he passed the laws that our Congress is passing. And I love my dad. And I think he's a great guy. But I'd have to look him dead in the eye and say, you know what? I can't vote for you, Dad. I can't vote for you because you're selling my children into debt. I can't vote for you because you're denying, you're giving government a false pretended authority to deny me of the rights that God gave me. Sorry, Dad, I can't vote for you. But we end up having a government that has an 11% approval rating and a 95% re-election. Because we can't get over ourselves. We can't step over our pride. We can't get over our cult tribalism and call people out for the things they do wrong because we're too afraid other people won't like us. Those days are over, by the way, because America's opening their eyes, right? Because we're getting punched in the face. By the way, we've been punched in the face for probably about 170 years. We're just figuring it out. Their protests, as you can see in the etching, were mock hangings of their tax collectors. By the way, if you read about that, because they talked about it in the newspapers, they actually went out of their way to make the, the stuffed dummies look exactly like the tax collector they wanted it to look like, down to the buckles on the shoes and the socks that they used. There was to be no mistake who they were talking about. They held mock funeral processions where they washed through the streets with, co with coffins, with effigies of their tax collectors and customs agents on the side, singing requiems and going to the, to the funeral and burying the coffin and giving a eulogy to liberty. You see, because the purpose of a protest is to make someone ashamed. And at least George III got the message because he started repealing things. He repealed the Stamp Act, he repealed the Quartering Act, and several other things, and, he, and the people got really excited. Huzzah! The king hears our cries! He's on our side! And we throw a big party in New York and put up a statue to honor George III because he's such a great king who hears the people. Meanwhile, parliaments in session ticked off at the king 
and the people for refusing, for denying their authority. Well, those cheeky colonists, they say we don't have the legal authority to pass these taxes, you know, representation and, and, and charters and constitutions and blah, 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 blah. Well, we'll fix them, you see. We'll just go into session and we'll pass the Declaratory Act that says we have the authority to pass any law we want. And there you have it. It's a law, so it must be. Parliament assembled had half and a right ought to have full power and authority to make laws and statutes of sufficient force and validity to bind the colonies and the people of America subjects of Great Britain, in case you've forgotten, in all cases whatsoever. Do you know, we didn't escape this idiocy in 2021, because you know how many people tell me, well, the Patriot Act's law, so, you know, those searches and seizure things, and the Health Care Act, even Roberts said that it was constitutional, therefore it must be. The existence of a law does not make it lawful. And by the way, this now creates a whole new a series of taxes that we start calling the Intolerable Act. And remember, it's not just about what the enemy does, it's what we did in response. Do you know what we did? We educated, we organized, and we activated, and here you have the Boston Tea Party. Mind you, seven years later. Seven years. Taxation without representation, mandated purchases, warrantless searches, denial of due process, foreign courts and foreign laws. Well, now things are really going to kick into gear. This is going to move really, 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 really quickly. By the way, uh, President Obama tried to say that what happened in Ferguson and Baltimore was just like our founding fathers. Um, no. The Boston Tea Party was not burning down donut shops and stealing televisions. Let me explain to you how the Boston Tea Party worked. Yes, they were disguised as Mohican Indians because the Mohican Indian government was a, was a truly liberty-minded government. So they dressed like them in a symbol uh, and praise of their liberty. They were not, they were not culturally approbating. They walked through the town very quietly, very soberly, because they knew that the government would see their acts as treason and they and their families would be punished by death. They walked and boarded the ships. They asked the shipmaster for the keys. The shipmaster handed them the keys. They opened the ship hold. They took out only the East India Trading Company tea. 
because the East India Trading Company had been yoked with the government to create a monopoly so no other tea company could ever operate in the colonies. They took the East India Trading Company tea and they busted the crates and they threw it overboard. Now it was low tide at the time, so some of the tea just landed in the dirt. Now they had made a pledge to each other that no one would ever take any of the tea home, not a leaf. So some of them hopped overboard and were stomping the tea in the mud so it could not be used. When they were done, they boarded back the ship. They locked the hold to secure the rest of the cargo. They handed the keys back to the shipmaster and they walked home in the same way they came. Can I tell you that the king was not happy about this? I want you to see it from his eyes. This did not happen in 30 seconds. The organization and planning of this had to have been done with the knowledge and consent of some of the people in government. And in the American colonies, the government wasn't elected by the people. They were appointed by the king. And the governor of Massachusetts at this time is a man named Hutchinson. And Hutchinson is now on the king's naughty list. The king issues the Boston Port Act and shuts down the ports along the harbors. There'll be no offloading of goods. There'll be no onloading of goods. We are shutting down commerce now. You want to, you want to pick a fight? That's fine. We'll pick a fight with you. You say you don't need our goods. You want our black market? Fine. That stuff will rot in your stores and it'll rot on the ship, but it's not going anywhere until you identify who these people are. You see, if we can starve the people and destroy their economy, they'll start turning each other in. That's what the king believed. Boston Port Act, the Massachusetts Government Act, the Administration of Justice Act, the Quartering Act, the Quebec Act, all now in full play. Because we took a stand. And it was at that point in time that the American colonists said, I guess we've done everything that we can. It's time to take care of our families. It's time to keep our jobs. It's time to simply comply. No, that's not what they said. That is not what they said. They said Regardless of the consequences, we are determined to proceed. And in 1774, they held another tea party. Only this one's a little bit different. And I bet you didn't hear about it because of the people who organized it. You see, it wasn't the Sons of Liberty who organized this one. 
It was the daughters. Penelope Barker, in 1774, organized over 50 women in the home of Elizabeth King in Edenton, North Carolina. With this battle cry. Now before I give you the battle cry, I want to remind you what your gender studies classes are teaching about Penelope and her women. The gender studies classes today in your finest halls of higher education are teaching that Penelope and her women were weak, oppressed, denied women by their overbearing, chauvinistic, misogynistic husbands who never had an opportunity to contribute to the foundation of America because they were beaten into submission and walked around in fear. Therefore, ladies, you should hate America, you should hate the Constitution because it was built on your back under your oppression. That's what your gender studies classes are teaching. By the way, that's what Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Supreme Court Justice of the United States, said to the Egyptian government when they asked her, we're need writing a new constitution, Ms. Ginsburg, as a Supreme, Justice, Supreme Court Justice of the United States. Would you recommend to the people of Egypt to use the American constitution? Her answer was no because it was built on the backs of oppressed women. And then she did a terrible disservice to John Adams and Abigail Adams by completely misquoting and misstating an, a correspondence between the two of them out of complete context to support her lies. So I want you to think about that caricature of these women as I read to you their battle cry. You ready? Maybe it has only been the men who have stood up to the king thus far. That means we women have taken too long to let our voices be heard. Amen goes there, ladies. We are signing our names to a document, not hiding ourselves behind costumes like the men in Boston did at their tea party. The government will know who we are. Does that sound like a beaten, fearful, oppressed woman calling out the men for being scaredy cats and hiding behind costumes? But you know what's even more amazing is not what, they, what she said, but what they did. You see, they did sign their names to a document. They signed their names to a pledge that they would purchase no English-made goods until the laws that had enslaved their people were repealed. And then they sent that petition to the government. You can actually go to the Edenton, North Carolina historical site and see that petition. And you will notice that these ladies did not use pseudonyms. They signed their first and last names. But you also will learn 
that these weren't just any women. The majority of the women who signed their name to that pledge were the wives, mothers, daughters, <coughs> sisters of English merchants. Pledging that they would purchase no English-made goods and then sending the names of English merchants to the government in defiance. That's why what they did was so amazing, because they knew that they would be charged with treason, but they also knew so would the men in their lives. And they knew that those men would not keep their jobs for much longer. And they also knew that they could be sentenced to death. Do you know what these ladies are telling us through history? That liberty is worth more than a paycheck. And it's worth more than the lives of the men who would bring it home. My favorite founding mother, Mercy Otis Warren, who just happens to be the sister of James Otis Jr., said we will stand against tyranny today or our children will bow tomorrow because ladies you know it's not about us because i might have my fears regardless of those fears if i am breathing my child will be free Hutchinson, so he revokes Hutchinson's appointment as governor of Boston and replaces him with General Thomas Gage, making Gage the military royal governor over Massachusetts. We now have martial law. He tells Gage, you must do everything humanly possible to get these seditionists under control. The king says, I want you to disarm all these people. Gage laughs, actually. He says, seriously, there's no way I'm doing that. They outnumber me and they outarm me. If you want them disarmed, you're going to have to do some things first. If you want these people disarmed, you have got to stop importing arms into our commerce. You've got to stop giving them access to ammunition. You've got to stop the lines of production, and you've got to stop the flow into commerce. Only after that will I be able to disarm them. The king said, no, you disarm them now. He's like, well, whatever. He didn't do that. You know what he first did? The first law Governor Gage passed was not about guns. It was about assembly. He passed a law that forbid any town meetings without his approval and then said he would only legally allow one town meeting a year. And our colonists all organized together and said, wow, we only get one meeting a year. We better start planning now and make it a doozy. No, that's not what they did. As soon as they heard about the law, a good number of them 
gathered in Salem in a peaceful protest of the governor's limit of their right to freedom of speech and freedom to assemble. Governor Gage, not much amused by the assembly, sent his troops to disband the group that was gathered. That was really the last straw for our colonists, right? Because they saw them coming and they were like, oh man, I can't go to jail. If I go to jail, I will lose my job. You know what? I, I don't wanna, that, there's a reporter over there. That's not me. I'm not with those people because if I get in the news, my mother-in-law, I'm going to tell you, I'm never going to hear the end of it, and I'm probably going to lose my job, and then, you know what, then my kids can't have cell phones, and we won't have that vacation, and oh my goodness, what all this stuff, and no, it's not me. Hey, you know what, I saw that crowd over there, officer, and I thought they were giving away Chick-fil-A, so I, I wanted to go see what was going on, and then I found out that's not what they were doing, so, so it wasn't about me, because, you know, that's what they did. They all scattered. No, that's not what they did. That same day, 3,000 men showed up and drove Gage's people away from the assembly. Can I mention to you, not a shot fired? Not a donut shut burned down? Not one television looted? Just a show of unity in liberty with principle, with courage, and with persistence. Now, Gage is not going to be embarrassed by this. He's a military man, a highly decorated general. So, in the early hours of September 1st, 1774, he sneaks his troops out and they go to uh, Charleston to steal the powder from the Charleston Powder House. He's going to get their ammunition supplies in the dark of night because he can't do it publicly anymore. And at that point in time, things get really exciting because they start now sending letters and petitions declaring that Thomas Gage has just declared war on the entire 13 colonies. I say that to you because he took the powder from one powder house and everyone in the American colonies stood up and said, that was not just an attack on Charleston, that was an attack on me. You see, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Because we still sat by when the governor of, of Connecticut had people standing in line to turn in their arms. And we said, oh, thank God I don't live in Connecticut. When the state of California told Springfield they couldn't sell their guns here, the rest of the world said, well, I'm glad I don't live in California. I like Springfield. You see, we've lost unity in America because we have lost our knowledge and wisdom about liberty. And we don't realize that an attack on one is an attack on all. 
You see, they realize that if one governor can take the arms of one town, then there's not a single town that is safe from this kind of tyranny. And they stood together that day. Within 24 hours, the people were educated, organized, and activated. Over 20,000 armed colonists aged 16 to 60 began to march their way to Boston. Five days later, the militia of Worcester County took over their government from the rule of the king, replacing all the leaders that were appointed by the king with those selected by the people. That same day, Suffolk County, the people gathered together, issued a list of 19 grievances against their government, and then promptly took control of their government away from the king's appointees and vowed to have peaceful open arms training every day in the town square. The First Continental Congress unanimously endorsed the Suffolk grievances and encouraged all other colonies to send support to Boston. Gage is now disarming all of Boston. He orders warrantless searches of the homes, seizing their arms and ammunitions to help keep people safe from the seditionists. There are blockades set up that says, you know, the ports are shut down. The people are literally starving. They have no place to buy toilet paper. So the governor says, we'll let you leave Boston and go live with your family members elsewhere. But in order to leave, you have to give your guns up on your way out. And then George III finally does what Gage asks him to and signs a law that stops all importation of arms and ammunition into the American colonies. Now what's interesting is the law doesn't make it against the law to import arms and ammunition into the colonies. What the law says is that, remember the Navigation Act, only English ships can go in there. The English merchants are not allowed to import arms and ammunition into the American colonies unless they get a permit from the king. <clears throat> and then he refuses to issue permits. Because you see, a permit is a permission slip. And if you have to get permission to do something, the power to give permission contains an inherent power to deny as well. But remember what Samuel Adams said, <clears throat> among the natural rights of the colonists are these, first life, second liberty, third property, together with the right, the natural right, to support and defend them in the best manner you can. You don't need a permission slip to keep and bear arms because God gave you that right by the nature of your creation. They don't have the power to give what they don't have the power to have, so they don't have the power to take it away unless you consent. So as we wrap this up, 
How did the colonists respond when the government limited speech and protests? When the government responded with force to their peaceful protests? When the government limited the ability of arms and ammunition? When the government engaged in warrantless searches and seizures? When the government claimed national security trumped their rights? How did they respond? They didn't start shooting. They educated, they organized, they assembled, and they activated. On March 23rd, 1775, Patrick Henry gives, me, gives his give me liberty or give me death speech. Following that speech, the committee was formed in Virginia, creating the resolution of the Provincial Congress of Virginia, declaring that Virginia no longer needed the aid of the British government, that they were fully capable of defending themselves, so there were no more British troops welcome in Virginia. And by the way, since we don't need your help, we're not getting your help, we don't need to pay for your help, we're not sending you any money anymore either. Now Gage is not done. He's a man of war and he is ready. And he sends out his troops onto Concord and Lexington to capture Sam Adams and John Hancock. And then he was gonna go on to Concord to seize more gunpowder. And the colonists responded and Paul Revere went on a ride. Now let me explain something to you, just a little bonus for your educational dollar. Paul Revere was not riding through the town yelling, the British are coming, the British are coming. They were all British. If you, I mean, that, it makes for a nice poem, but it's not real history. If you read Paul's diaries, because he has his diaries published, he was yelling, the regulars are coming, because that's how they identified the British troops, they called them regulars. Now here's the story, I gave you the little path and I just want you to realize something, there were more people than Paul Revere. You see, there were more people all over the colonies making this ride. One of them I'm sure you've never heard of because he's actually a black man by the name of Wentworth Cheswell. Wentworth Cheswell was actually the first black mayor in America. He was a successful business owner. And he went on the ride and signed the pledge of the Declaration of Independence. But Paul Revere went on his ride. And you see the path there. Um, the doctor, forgetting his name at the moment, goes to the left path and Paul goes to the right. It was not an easy thing. He ran into some soldiers on the way and some, some little old farmer lady had to help him escape being captured at one point in time quite ingeniously. She lied to his captors, put them in fear and made them made, and convinced them to let Paul Revere go so that the, the British troop, or the, I'm sorry, the American colonist forces that were coming wouldn't kill them if she told them that he, they let Revere go. You see, but there were no colonist army coming. She just lied. And they were so fearful, they just went along. But it's after midnight when Revere gets to the home where Hancock and Adams are 
staying. And he's screaming, according to his diary, screaming at the top of his lungs, Arise! Arise! The regulars are coming! The regulars are coming! Arise! Arise! And the sentinel of the house comes out and says to Revere, Sir! Sir! You've got to keep out all that noise. You're going to wake the master of the house. At which point, Revere writes in his diary that he looked at his watch and said, My bad. <clears throat> I'm going to go down to the inn and, and get some sleep, and then I'll have some tea and some scones, and I'll be over at a decent hour. It's not what he said. He said, Sir... You'll have noise enough. The regulars are coming. At which point the sentinel realizes the danger that's approaching and wakes Hancock and Adams and Revere heads on to Concord. Can I give you a little modern day application of what you just heard? By show of hands, how many of you have friend, friends, family members, coworkers that think you're a bunch of conspiracy theorists? <laughs> heard in one shape or another man I just don't even watch the news anymore it's just so depressing and in reality it really doesn't affect me I mean we've got so much going on you know after school activities we're working jobs and on the weekend you know I just really want to get home and just you know watch some Netflix or watch some football I don't even want to think about that stuff I mean hear that all stuff. you see what that is is the modern day equivalent of that sentinel that met Revere. What they're saying is, you have got to stop all this noise. You're going to wake the master of the house. But we are the ones that are aware of the danger approaching. And we have a duty to wake the master of the house. Now, don't be obnoxious. Right? Don't be obnoxious. That doesn't help anybody. But you can continue to, to cry the danger so that the people will awaken. I mean, everybody has to come to their own awakening at some point or another. I spent the good first 27 years of my life a hardcore socialist. So if I can wake up, anybody can wake up. We're still organizing people, we're still activating, even though this is going down. Patrick Henry takes a regiment of his man, men from Hanover, and makes demands of Lord Dunamore, who has seized the powder from their powder house. And in their activation, Dunmore actually replaces all the ammo. All right, I'm going to stop there because I usually don't ever record hour longs. And um, uh, I'll put it somewhere else. I'm going to make sure this is all recorded. Let's see.